0: are complex machines that require a fairly intense expertise to install, maintain, repair, you get the drift. Aboard the Datanaut's Dreadnought-class battleship, we've decided to install a brand new model called Foodless that is able to replicate hot wings like never before. Except we don't have a clue how to use this thing. Fortunately, we've managed to snag someone who knows a thing or two about researching a new technology and training those on its use cases and operations. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and with me is my co-host, who stopped after eating a single Pringles chip, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on Twitter, and this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. There's a lot of meat in this sandwich, ladies and gentlemen, so let's get started. We have a special guest, Brett Garino. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do? And let's get nerdy. Absolutely. Nerdy is where I like to be. So, my name is
1: Brett Garino. I'm a principal instructor with VMware Education specifically. And I've been doing that representing VMware for four years now, but I've been an instructor for uh, about nine or 10 years now. I was initially doing so as a contract instructor and acting as a consultant representing my own business in the consulting space.
0: But uh, I've been working with education for quite a while. Got it. So, people either like you or hate you, I guess, depending on how they did in the course or. Do you have have a fan club? Does that work? We absolutely have a fan club. I mean, come on. But we
1: don't necessarily grade people through the course. So people are rather indifferent towards the outcome of the class. Uh, Hopefully when they leave the class, they've acquired the tools to make their life easier as a result of the class.
0: Well, let's start with kind of a, a high level grand scheme kind of question. How do you or how does your team approach an undertaking that has the monumental kind of scope as, as much as building, you know, something like the install configure manage course for VMware, because I'll be honest, I went through it back in 2008 or nine or something like that. And I was impressed. It was a lot to cover in five very, you know, felt very like short days. Yeah. Time
1: absolutely flies. When you were in any one of our courses, the curriculum development team strives to achieve, as you said, a monumental task of, of, just cramming all of this information into a very, very short span of time. We have classes that run a span of one day, two days, three days, four days, or five days, and some of them have extended run times of 10 or 12 hours. So when you're looking at that, we have a team that's dedicated to curriculum development. A lot of people don't realize this, but we literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of courses. There are several hundred courses available. It's just that install, configure, manage, and fast track, for each of the given lines of business, NSX, vSAN, vSphere, VRA, etc., those tend to dominate the space. But we have a curriculum development team that's responsible for developing tons and tons of courses, and these are public-facing. So you kind of were asking about the process to develop something like install, configure, manage. Yeah. And the way these things tend to unfold is the curriculum developer is responsible there is a curriculum developer specifically who's assigned to the task and is responsible for putting together the content. Now they don't do so in a vacuum because we also recruit subject matter experts who are usually internal PSO individuals who will contribute content as well from the field so that we've got a customer demand perspective being brought into the classroom where we can say, look, the majority of customers need this skill set. that's what we wanna deliver on. In addition to the PSO expert, or the PSO subject matter expert, there is a senior VMware certified instructor who is an internal employee who will also be defined to help lead the course and drive the content development. And effectively, at some point, these folks all get locked into a room where the course is delivered as an alpha and changes are made before it's delivered as a publicly open and available beta delivery, which is of course offered at a discounted admission to anyone who's going to attend the course. So guinea pigs, in other words. Precisely. Yeah. We need their input and feedback to really help polish the course at the end of it. But when we do the alpha, we tend to deliver it internal only so that we're kind of making sure we show our best side in the beta.
2: <laughs> okay, we were talking about scoping in there. I mean, how do you decide when you're scoping out that class? Because you mentioned what the customer wants or what they're asking for. Okay. Well, there's that aspect of it, but there's also aspects of the product that maybe VMware just wants everyone to know about. Does that factor into scoping as well? You know, it absolutely
1: does. Uh, there are times where we, as a department, will admittedly butt heads with one another. The, the, the PSO subject matter expert might not want to see something in the class. The, the senior instructor who's tasked as the lead on the course may not want to see something in the class, but maybe it's come from on high that we have to represent certain content regardless of whether it needs to be in there or not. That content does still add value, okay? It is still relevant to some feature set that the product has to offer. And what we try to do is tie in business use cases to these features. We don't wanna present features for the sake of features. Just because the product can do something doesn't mean that it serves a valid use case. But if we can tie that into a actual business use case for the people in the room, and extend to them the fact that look, this is a tool that you can use to accomplish this particular need that you may have in your environment, then we're driving value with it, and it's not just kind of shoehorning topics in that really don't belong there
0: interesting. I always had this vision of like a person being locked in a room just coming up with all this like you know like whittling a chair, and then oh, look at my masterpiece, but it's I'm glad to hear that it's more collaborative than that, and it got me thinking so let's let's take the assumption that you've got a very energetic group. Everyone's being proactive. They all like are into this. Well, now you've got another problem, right? In my mind, you have to prioritize the content. You have to figure out what am I going to spend the most amount of time on? How am I going to kind of float it up, if you will, towards being a heavy hitter and gets the critical time that it needs and the weight that it deserves within the course. How do you kind of figure out, okay, this is what we know we want to talk about, but this is the order and the amount of attention things get and kind of prioritizing, especially in a group setting, because I feel like maybe if it's just you, then you may be right or wrong about it, but you can at least just say, well, you know, I'm going to make this the most important and I'm the king, so it doesn't matter. But in a group setting, that feels like it might be a little bit more difficult. Absolutely. It depends entirely on the course.
1: The topics and the way that we approach waiting topics and the depth in which we'll cover them is going to be different for something like Install Configure Manage versus a troubleshooting course versus a fast-track version of a course versus a design course or an architecture course, or what we call now the design and deploy hybrid course. Depending on how advanced it is, we're going to cover different topics. One of the trends that we've kind of taken is that with Install Configure Manage, we'll cover things that are available in more tiers of licensing, we'll say. I should say actually less tiers of licensing. And by that, what I mean is, you know, we might cover something up to standard and or enterprise, depending on the product level of licensing. But as we get into the enterprise or enterprise plus, depending on the product, that might be topics that we reserve for the more advanced courses. Okay, That's a trend that you might see. So that's going to determine and impact and influence the weight of a given topic and whether or not a given topic appears in a particular course. And it also depends on the goals of the curriculum developer, the PSO SME, and the internal instructor assigned with lead, because they're going to have their own dog in the fight as well that they're going to push for. But my dog in the fight is always job task alignment. I try to look at what job people are doing with this particular piece of software, and I want to bring things that are relevant from that perspective.
2: So, Brett, people learn in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, Some people are very into audio or they want to read something or they're hands-on learners. So does that factor into things when you build out a class?
1: You know, it does. And part of the reason that we do provide courses the way that we do, which is through a multitude of different modalities. We offer courses that are live online through WebEx or Zoom. We offer courses that are live in person where you can show up on site and have an instructor in a classroom with you all week. We offer courses that are video on demand and all of our courses regardless of which modality you pursue are going to involve some measure of powerpoint where we are going to be using that as a framework for a lecture to drive a discussion between the instructor and the students and then we supplement that theoretical and conceptual model discussion with actual hands-on labs which give a feeling of practical implementation to drive home the point of what we had discussed in the lecture and by doing that we kind of touch on folks who have an auditory, a visual and a hands-on need. And of course, it's up to the instructor to reinforce that as needed on a case by case situation with each student.
2: Yeah, okay. So it's really it's a mixed it's a mixed media kind of thing. You've got lecture because you need to set a base of information for folks and then but the people that are only going to pick up so much you need to reinforce all of that with the hands-on so they get that, uh, et cetera. You're probably dealing with a lot of uh, engineering folks who, who tend to follow a stereotype. I'm just curious if they are typically, I want hands-on labs every time, or, or if there's some particular trend you've noticed how these folks like to learn?
1: The vast majority of is is lab-driven. People really want to derive value out of the labs.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I've ever, I, I know, I'm kind of dating myself here, but you know, the the ICM three or whatever it was course, when they finally let me touch the V because I had been doing standalone hosts prior to that, I was like, this is so amazing, you know, V motion and whatnot. that hit the hands-on lab solidified what I had been learning, and just it got me so jazzed up. Of course, this is like back when vMotion was the hot stuff and had never really been seen too much before, but still. The hands on lab took everything that was kind of like slideware and documentation and really added that kind of like reality check, you know, where I'm clicking the button and doing these things. And uh, ever since then, I've just really enjoyed it. So that's a good point.
1: Absolutely. And that's a a huge point. To this day, I have people who come in the class, they do the vMotion stuff. I've got people who are administrators of vSphere that have never actually set up vMotion. They don't even recognize that a VM kernel port marked for vMotion is required. And we talk about everything that goes into that. And, and you really do see the light bulb go off and they're impressed with everything that's actually taking place behind the scenes, because to them it's just a click and the VM the just moved to the other host. You never really consider it. But yeah, even yeah. that is a great example to this
0: day. <laughs> well, then I'm thinking about, we've talked about the audience kind of being those that need to learn a technology, ideally for the first time, or just boning up on it, refreshing whatnot. What about when you're training those that, their, in, their intent of being trained is to train others. You know, you're, I guess, how do you train those that are already skilled or potentially certified in training others? Does it work differently? Does it have anything to do with the VCI? I think that's the VMware Certified Instructor Program. Just offer me some ideas as to how that works. Absolutely. VMware
1: education, in my opinion, does a great job of this. And internally, we have what we call a TTT, which is short for train the trainer. And it's a course delivery that's identical to what students will ultimately experience however when we run these instructors exclusively are invited and they're one of my favorite things to go through on any topic because the interaction between the instructors because we all know each other it's pretty tight-knit community we meet each other at VMworld if we've never met before and you end up with some extremely candid interaction and the questions are very interesting and a lot of these instructors who are outside of the internal scope of VMware a lot of them are contract instructors that are outside of the company and they do a lot of consulting and they teach on a lot of different topics so they bring a ton of expertise to this and I've seen situations where we're in a train the trainer and it you know a certain question might change my own viewpoint on a, a given feature and how I use it or a certain architectural consideration.
2: Brett, talk to me about your or any vendor's formal courses, the ones that you guys create internally versus a lot of third parties out there, Pluralsight and ACloud.Guru and so many of these other companies that have done very well for themselves providing third-party independent content. How would you contrast what, what someone should be thinking about as they evaluate official versus third-party curriculum?
1: Yeah, with us, the the key thing that's usually the differentiator is that we're required for the certification. You have to go through one of our courses in order to qualify for the certification. But I would say one of the biggest differences, having participated in delivering and producing third-party training materials as well as materials internal for the company, the biggest thing is that in a third-party situation, you're not necessarily bound to deliver on a specific topic at all. You've got a ton of freedom to pick and choose anything you want how you're going to cover it, the depth to which you're going to uncover it with an internal delivery mechanism where we're delivering something to represent the company. We are beholden to certain company initiatives and we are beholden to certain initiatives and paradigms that are set in place, uh, rubrics, if you will, that we have to follow within the existing organization and certain editing standards that we have to conform to that we would otherwise maybe not have to conform to if we were doing a third party delivery.
2: You know, you really can't have that cloud rainbow unicorn thing because it's not very professional on your slide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I disagree. There should always be a rainbow and a unicorn in every I'm just go ahead. Yeah. That was just derailing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've got that sticker on the back of my
0: laptop so Brett, you've you've been doing this for quite some time as you've, as you explained at the intro, what would you advise just kind of as a closing thought here for someone listening like, man, I really want to enter this world of technical course creation and, and education. Is there any kind of first steps or starting point that you would advise for those that are looking into that? Absolutely. Same
1: advice I think anyone would give for anyone interested in any topic. And that is just start, just start doing it, start creating content. And when you start, don't judge yourself too harshly, let yourself make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and identify people that you respect in the field and study them. As an instructor, I've been influenced hugely by the style of several other instructors and by the study habits of several other instructors. I mean, my home lab is definitely something that I maintain as a result of my experience with other people and what they've done. I mean, there's a ton of blogs out there on that particular topic. And I, to this day, incorporate teaching techniques that were instilled in me by having observed grade school teachers that I had who would employ certain mnemonics that, to this day, I couldn't get out of my head if I wanted to. So I I definitely take advantage of some of those things. Really, just pay attention to people who impress you when you're learning. And if you're interested in this kind of stuff, you're gonna learn. And you're going to seek out new content and you're going to learn from new people. And as you do take away, not only whatever they're teaching, but also their style and the way that they deliver things.
2: I thought it was interesting the way that they construct these classes. So the vendor knows what customers are asking for. But the vendor also knows what the customers need that might not be something they are aware of even exists in a product. And so the training helps them from both angles. You get in one of these classes what you need and what you want. What grabbed your attention, Chris?
0: Ethan, I thought it was interesting that licensing tiers can ultimately influence the content presented during a course. I, it makes sense when you say it out loud. You know, the more enterprisey features tend to solve very specific or even very complex problems. And I guess it stands to reason that a smaller amount of potential students would need to go deeper on those items than a standard or kind of, you know, regular class would need.
2: Well, Brett, we've got a pretty good idea of how you build a course, the considerations you have and what it takes to actually put a course together and deliver it to somebody. But that's got to start with research. I mean, before you can teach it, before you can build a course around, you got to learn that material. So what's your strategy for learning some brand new technology? Do you, do you read documentation? Do you just jump in and go for it? Move fast and break things, as they say. What's your strategy? Absolutely move fast and break things. Home lab and maintaining
1: a home lab is something that is absolutely invaluable. And so many vendors these days, VMware included, offer tremendous lab services for free. And they offer tremendous educational resources for free. I'm extremely tactile in my learning process and I'm really not comfortable with working with or representing or acting as an authority on products until I've broken them, fixed them, found more ways to break them and subsequently had to fix them. So for me, that's, that's definitely something that I kind of dedicate myself to is the hands-on aspect because it it makes me feel much more authoritative when something breaks and I
0: can immediately react and say, yeah, I've seen this before. This is how we fix it. Ah, man. Preaching to the choir. Totally. uh, I do love breaking things. Although I feel like as I get older, we'll say, or maybe just doing this tech stuff for a while, the allure of reading and researching gets a little bit more weighted in my mind. I definitely... Don't get me wrong. I don't mind breaking things. And it's certainly one way to learn. But I don't know. It just, it's changing for me. Is that something similar for you, Brett? And, and ideally, if if you didn't have a lab, are there any research methods that you employ that you know our listeners might be able to take advantage of if they just can't get access to the gear or the stuff?
1: Yeah, for sure. I still would go back to labs. If, as long as you've got a web browser, you can access VMware Hands-On Labs absolutely free of charge. You just need to count, and there's excellent documentation that goes along with those labs. In addition, white papers, uh, the VMware Documentation Center, VMware Storage Hub, for example. If you're a VMware partner, you've got access to Partner University, which has a tremendous amount of material and learning opportunities there. As an employee of VMware, we have some internal resources, and social media, Twitter, blogs, all of those things. There's a few bloggers that are are pretty prolific. I don't know. One of them might be on this call, maybe two of them, who knows? (laughs) But there's uh, a tremendous amount of information that you can tap into in those spaces. And I I absolutely reach out and use all of those things.
2: Now, now you mentioned cloud labs, vendor labs, and, and I've noticed the proliferation of those where some vendor is making it available to you for free over the internet or for a pretty nominal cost. And then there's new stuff coming up like uh, NRE labs, uh, network, oh gosh, network reliability dot engineering, another set of free labs that more and more of these things are happening. Does that mean home labs are dead? You know, home labs, I would, I would argue are not dead.
1: And the reason I would say that is in my home lab, I have a persistent environment with the ability to pivot and do anything that I want in there. And that persistence is invaluable to me. A lot of vendors have solutions that you could pay for and get the same level of persistence. And as the prices come down on that, people should be considering those as an alternative to their home lab, because when you weigh the monthly cost of the burden of the monthly cost, so to speak, when you're uh, looking at what it's going to cost you to run a cloud based lab solution that's persistent versus a home lab, looking at energy costs on running data center based equipment instead of something like Intel NUX in your home lab is going to be a massive consideration. And it may end up being less expensive for someone to actually run it in the cloud and have it be persistent. So is it threatened? I would say yes, but I wouldn't say that it's dead.
0: Darn I really want something like nothing seems to die in tech, you know, (laughs) mainframes tech, like even labs, nothing refuses to die, Uh, (laughs) which is fine. Although it's shifting my mind elsewhere to kind of that interaction that you You know, if you've worked in the vendor space or kind of the product space before, there's typically kind of this interesting interaction between what engineering is looking to build when it comes to the VMware products or anybody's products, you know, what the product management team is pitching and delivering and and kind of owning And then what education needs to actually absorb and teach. You know, like sometimes the engineer codes it one way, the, the product manager documents it a different way, and then you're kind of in the middle there, you know. You're trying to make sure that you get the content right, and obviously you can lab it and break it and whatnot. But put me in your head a little bit. How do you flesh out where these differences are, where these where these gaps kind of are between what a product does do and what it's documented to do, especially when they don't quite mesh with reality. And uh, do you ever have to worry about being too verbose, you know, like uh, telling a student potentially information that might be, you know, competitive intelligence, a competitor wants to know how this thing works? Is it, you ever run up against that or is that not a thing? Those are my two, my two thoughts there.
1: Yeah. Uh, so we're definitely influenced by a variety of uh, internal departments with their own initiatives, Right. We seek to ensure that their interests are properly represented while still delivering on what students are there to get out of the class. We do our best to really please all parties while still genuinely delivering on the goal of of driving that value. In terms of worrying about competitive transparency with regard to technical details, you know, not really. Everything that we do is screened for confidentiality and competitive data and whether or not we're considering using proprietary information in a course. If something like that's going to be available through VMware education, we're mostly public facing. So that would be an extreme rarity. Typically, the only time that this has ever come up would be if someone was invited to an alpha or a beta that required them signing an NDA because the product had not yet been released. Other than that, I can't really think of a time that that was a major consideration.
2: Hmm. Well, how do you decide how the training content needs to keep up with the current release uh, versions? I mean, do you keep content slightly behind or is there some cadence that you follow that allows the course to keep up with the product as uh, as it revs up?
1: Yeah, the developers and the market doesn't care what education needs. So this decision is really made on a course by course basis, dependent upon several factors, the largest of which is whether or not the recent software update is big enough to even warrant a change in the course content. Typically, what we'll do is we'll have an addendum, or we'll simply expect the instructor to be able to bridge the gap and address the changes that have been presented in the latest version of the product or in the latest update. When we're talking about products like vSphere, NSX, vSAN, that are updated arguably more frequently than products like SRM, you're going to see updates to those courses more frequently. SRM, for example, at its core, rarely ever changes. And any time that there's a massive paradigm shift with one of these products, then we revisit the entire thing from the ground up. For example, if we get support for a client or we shift support away from one client over to another one, that would require a rebuild of the labs and we'll probably revisit all of the content to get screen caps using the new client version as well.
2: Yeah. So there's a right. You get a new feature there's, and you may want the customer to be able to adopt that feature. You want to reduce that adoption barrier, but through education. So you do want to get it in there at the same time. It's not like it's, oh, well, obviously we're going to teach every new feature because it's a big pain in the butt, especially when things change to get the course updated. So you got to find that balance, I guess, eh? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You definitely find yourself in a position where you, you want to ease the barriers to entry for anything that's new. I mean, We live and die by what's new and whether or not people adopt it. So we really struggle to drive value with anything that's new and make sure that we translate business value and translate to our administrators in the classroom. Because like you guys said, we mostly get system administrators in the classroom, system engineers. How does this new feature or product actually make their life easier? You know, that's a huge part of
0: it for us. You know, Ethan, my takeaway here is that there's a lot of resources available to everyone these days. You know, you can focus on labs, you can focus on resources, documentation, what have you, but there's a wide spectrum. So I guess my advice here would be if you're limited to a single resource, you know, like I only have this one document or only this one lab, that should be a a red flag. It's worth the time to take a step back and pop your head up and figure out what else is available to make you successful.
2: Ethan, what's on your mind? I wanted to drill into the home lab idea there because home labs aren't dead, I I think we decided, but they are on life support. It is not cheap to buy and run servers. I mean, I've got some servers that I've done lab work on over the years, but I've actually gotten in the habit of shutting them down because I know they cost me eh, 15, 30 bucks a month just to have them sit there in the rack spinning, whether I'm using them Or not. So it's not cheap to have these things, and then you got the burden of maintaining the gear. You got to maintain the lab environment, set up the virtualization, install the the images, and get them all talking to each other, and so on. Depending on what it is that you're trying to learn, the alternatives that are becoming more common—they're really interesting to me. They facilitate quick learning. There's less time you got to fool around with setup, and that gives you more time to just get information into your brain. And I think that's a really a really big deal. So these virtual cloud labs that are up there. So I mentioned network reliability and there's more and more resources like that that are popping up that I think mean it's time to rethink the home lab. Do you actually need to do this anymore and spend that money when you can go in the cloud and do it for cheap or maybe even for free?
0: On to, I'm sure will be the, the fan favorite part of today's discussion around taking that that educational prowess and the research necessary to build the courseware and actually mapping that to certifications. And just, you know, my own perspective here, a lot of folks are after that, like tech professionals, we kind of need certifications to obtain a number of tangible benefits, like, you know, better job or a bonus or a raise, or just you want to escape the current field you're in. And this is a good way to get out into something else more interesting. So then, Brett, the question is, how do those course materials ultimately map to one or more technical certification blueprints and the objectives listed within those blueprints? Do these things intertwine? Are you are you thinking about the exam blueprint when you craft the course or, or is it kind of an after, you know, after the course is done, then you do the exam?
1: They are two absolutely independent departments inside of VMware. So curriculum development will build their course and certification will build their certification and the two don't necessarily have to have anything to do with each other there's no requirement around that for either one so that being said when we do build blueprints depending on what subject matter experts show up for the certification development there is typically an initiative if an instructor is in the classroom to do their best to represent the content and the course But it's not a requirement for any of the certification development that the topics in class align with the certification.
0: Is that because the course is really aimed at arming someone with that operational knowledge to be successful as an admin and the exam is more making sure that you have that wider but maybe thinner amount of knowledge across a larger surface area of knowledge points, if you will?
1: Yeah, exactly. If you look at the prerequisites for almost any of our exams, you're going to find that they're a lot more intense than a five day, 40 hour week course. And that being the case, we don't have time in a week or even in a fast track class to cover every single topic you're going to see on the exam and the level of depth to which you're expected to be responsible for it on the exam. The best thing to do on the exams is look at the blueprints and I'll explain why that is.
2: Yeah. So, so Brett, here's as someone who's done an awful lot of certifications over the years. I've I've gone through this bit of agony as the, the student or the person going after the cert, where you think I'm going to the official course. That means I get everything I need to know. And I'm going to walk into that exam. And as long as I've crushed, whatever it is that was given to me as course materials, I am going to nail this exam. And yeah, not, that's not how that works. You need to know so much more, which can be a frustration. And, and sometimes... Still, you got to be able to judge what you're putting in the course to some degree by how people are doing on the exam. I mean, is there some kind of a feedback loop? Do you do you look at metrics, results of of uh, what comes back from the exam, the pass fail rates, particular questions that people got wrong, anything that uh, informs what maybe tweaks need to be made to the course?
1: You know, that's something that I'm not entirely sure of. I do know that at some point we had psychometricians who were looking at things like this. I don't know to what impact the feedback that we get on the certifications comes through from certification. I know certification looks at this very, very heavily. I'm not really sure how much they tie into talking to curriculum development about this though, to bridge gaps for the sake of performance on an exam. It may influence how grading is done and how a particular item is weighted if we find that everyone is doing poorly on a particular question.
2: What I'm hearing here, though, is is that the the testing process and the results on a test are more or less separated from course development. Those are not one-to-one things. The exam is driven by the blueprint. The course is driven by as much of the high level and major components as you can get in in a course of a week, however long the course is. And the test and the exam is really a separate thing that a student or a certification seeker needs to take on their own and make sure they shore up all the areas that maybe there wasn't enough opportunity to cover in the course.
1: Absolutely. And people retain information differently in a classroom setting from one person to the next. I tend to tell people, if you're going to take my ICM class, for example, you should feel at that point, assuming that you understand every single topic in the class, that you are between 40 and 60% prepared for your VCP exam on data center virtualization if we're talking about vSphere ICM. That's what it is. If you wanna prepare for the exam, then I always encourage people to look at the blueprint and look at people who have dissected the blueprint. Through the years, we've had some brilliant people do so. Um, Kendrick Coleman has has at one point, I wanna say on vSphere 5, he was a massive contributor to that. Nowadays on on vSphere 6, you've got uh, Vladin is doing a ton with that. There's people who stand out in the community that dissect the blueprint, take screen caps from their lab environments, add notes. And they do a tremendous job of really, in my mind, what these folks have done kind of taught me how to approach a blueprint on an exam and derive what information I should be extracting from the blueprint and determine my own study methodology that breeds success. So yeah, you're right as far as certification goes and curriculum development goes two separate arms of the same entity where one does not necessarily influence the other and there is efforts underway, there are efforts underway, I should say to kind of change that and, and, and get it to where curriculum development is considering certification in a capacity in which it influences how courses are developed.
2: Man, it could be that there's just too much material to to know in these worlds because these products are so complex. It, It is so intimidating coming in fresh to technology. You start taking the courses and trying to get your head around it, and you can spend a week in a class, right? So, you know, an intense class, it's four days, it's five days, and it's intense, as we were saying at the top of the show. Some of these classes are, you know, 10 or 12 hour days. I've been to some boot camps where it Kind of was 24 hours a day, these really rigorous like uh, CCIE routing and switching kind of environments. You got to sleep at some point and you do, but and you walk out of there after all that intensity and learning all this stuff that's heavy and complex and you didn't learn it all. There's still more you got to go after. Maybe we're doing something wrong in this industry. I don't know.
1: I don't know, Brett. I don't know. Yeah. uh, You know, one of the points you bring up is I, I don't take boot camps anymore. I won't do a class more than eight hours a day because my retention in those classes is so terrible that I walk away with less value for the amount of time that I spent. Maybe that's just me. Maybe there are people who can go into a boot camp and get a lot out of it. But I intentionally will not sit a 10 hour or 12 hour a day course because I know from experience I'm wasting my time. I just Can't focus and retain enough information that gets delivered in that amount of time in a single day.
2: This is it's just I think it's a crucial takeaway that folks that think they're going to invest in a class and walk out and get the exam can't think about it that way. It's the class gets you that that grounding, that solid foundation. But you're going to do a lot more work to be competent enough with that product you're trying to cert on to be able to to nail that exam is is what it sounds like. That's that's the current environment.
1: I would agree with that entirely. And, uh, you know, the only exception I make to the boot camp thing is if I have a tremendous amount of experience on the product, then I'll go sit in a course that's 10, 12 hours a day because I already have so much foundational knowledge coming into the topic that I can really dig in and get the more deep topics out of the way there. But yeah, as as far as preparing for a certification goes, I, I treat that as a totally separate thing as a result of the fact that
0: The way that we do it is the certifications are built independent of the curriculum. Also, maybe boot camps tended to be like, I don't know, that was the old way of doing things. And we the ability to do hands-on labs and read documentation and go I, I just feel like we've expanded the ability to to offer more learning avenues for those that don't necessarily just want to hear lecture and do like little little spot on labs for you know, 60 hours in the week. Because I I remember doing a few of those way, way early days. But I also was a blank slate. I didn't know a lot about the topic. And so I used that as like a kickstart. I felt like the value in the bootcamp was largely changing the unknown unknowns into known unknowns. You know, like I now know 80% of the world is a mystery to me, but at least I know where I should invest my time versus before when, you know, you start a fresh technology, like I have no clue where to start. And I think that goes back to your yeah, You've definitely underlined the need to look at a blueprint just because it does literally paint the picture of it. At the very least, here's the surface area you should cover if you want to be successful on the exam because you can't build a blueprint and not include everything that might potentially be on there, at least at a high level. Like It does offer you some guidelines and some guardrails as far as where to invest your time and, and what to what to start learning. And I, I guess I, I'll jump on my soapbox for a minute. Maybe you can answer this mystery that I've always had in my head. Why is it that everybody, every different vendor has different weird scales for scoring exams? I, do, I, I know the VCP was like 100 to 500 or something goofy. You yeah, know, I think some Cisco ones are like zero to a thousand. Microsoft has these different bands. Is this Jedi mind tricks? Am I missing something important here? Or is it just arbitrary?
1: It's completely arbitrary. Every company has their own rubric by which they're going to determine grading. Ours happens to be a 500 point scale for our exams, where 300 is passing for most candidates. There are certain roles that if you're trying to achieve, you have to score higher. But why does it vary between vendors? I don't know. I'm going to blame the exams that predate IT certifications. SAT and ACT are scored on two totally different scoring criteria. You know, where what? It's like 36 and 1500 or something or 1700 is the maximum. I don't know. I never took an SAT to know.
0: I think we we just need two scores: awesome and not awesome, or less awesome. I'm
1: okay, I, I you pass and fail. Yeah, pass fail yeah. That's all I've got. I,
0: I kind of always wanted. I always wanted to go to like a Pearson test center, and you know, if 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 you fail, there's like literally someone gives you a big hug, and they're like, "It's okay." Like, I would I would pay an extra five dollars for the exam for that, and then and then a crisp high five that's free if you pass. A crisp high five. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I I hate to admit this, but
1: I actually did receive a hug when I walked out of one of my VCDX panels.
2: Brett, let's look to the future. Technology keeps changing. There's different ways to interact with people. Uh, is there a, a way that we can maybe change exams and certifications and so on, and maybe not do a you know multiple choice or you know what, what? I know there's a variety of different questions you get in these exams where you get the question right or wrong, and you get that magical score at the end. Can we move past that in the future? Is there? maybe some kind of a more lab oriented or, or architectural kind of uh, exam that you can get since, I don't know, we got machine learning and artificial intelligence. Maybe that gives us some magic in a, in a test engine that lets us uh, do more creative and interesting kinds of tests.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. And I would point to my favorite series of exams that we offer are the VMware certified advanced professional deploy exams. And these are anywhere from three to four hour lab environments where you log into the kit, you're in the proper testing center, and you are presented with things that the business needs. You know, we need so many networks provisioned to do task X with limited communication between this machine and this machine while they use networks X and Y. And then you just go into the lab environment and you do it. And what I love about this is that It confirms that you have the demonstrable skills necessary to interpret the business need and actually deliver on it within the product. And it's representative of the knowledge that you need to successfully do your job. And that's awesome. It's not just bullet points that I'm pointing to on a multiple choice option. Personally, it's one of my absolute favorite things. And I wish every exam was represented like that. Although to represent things like that, it's more costly. It's more difficult than just producing a
0: multiple choice thing that says, yes, you've got a foundational knowledge of the following criteria. Kind of expanding on Ethan's question, Brett, do you feel that the app dev world will adopt certifications? I don't know. I, I know there's like, certifications for Amazon and things like that. But when I look at the app dev world and the coding world, it tends to be show me your code examples, perform live code exercises, or or, you know, kind of those like puzzle type interactions to show that the candidate has the skills needed. To your point, with the deploy exam, it is a lot more like, hey, do the things, but that's a little more of a exception than the rule. Do you think app dev will lean in on, on what we're doing in the ops world and say, oh, do these you know, check these boxes and click these buttons and and solve these ABCD multiple choice answers, or um, they're just going to keep kind of doing what they're doing and, and say certs are certs are silly. We don't we don't need those crazy things. I'm going to answer this by saying money talks. If they believe they can drive
1: value for exam candidates by making employers seek out candidates who hold a certain certification that says they can do something, then the company stands to make money by having candidates who can demonstrate their skills via acquisition of that certification. Then you'll start seeing exams pop up to meet the market demand for them. I mean, that's just how it's gonna go. That, that's kind of how this whole thing started is people wanted to get hired for a certain job. Companies wanted to know that the person was qualified and who in HR really knows if uh, you can properly set up a vMotion network or configure SDRS properly. HR doesn't know that. So they go off of certs. So yeah, when, when the
0: demand is there, it will be followed. I'm sure of it. I just poured a little bit of liquor out for the MCSC circa late 90s. <laughs> yeah, I still have mine. It'll never go away. <laughs> right on. Well, Brett, I appreciate you coming on and, and really kind of giving us a brain dump and a, and a, and a view into the world of education certifications. Uh, for those that want to interact with you further, follow you online, You know where can they find you, blog, that kind of jazz?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter, uh, at Brett underscore Garino is uh, my Twitter
0: handle. and And people are more than welcome to reach out to me there. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time, Brett. It's been enlightening and also a little nostalgic. And that's it for today's edition of the DataNots Podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my good friend Ethan, he's at ECBanks on Twitter and blogging at PackaPushers.net. For more of our data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packapushers.net. You'll find the data knots talking about containers, certifications, PowerShell, education, full stack engineering, you name it, it's there. Go enjoy. And until then, may your server lights blink, your exam attempts be successful, and your cables be cleanly managed. This is gonna be where everybody gets excited. Yeah.